Good morning. Uh, it's it's really good to be with you guys this morning. And again, if you're from Staten Island, we love you so much. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to start off by telling a couple of stories. Um, not stories, maybe uh, small parts of my life that I think are important uh, related to what we're talking about today. Uh, three big, like, maybe the three most important moments in my life. Uh, the first uh, was my wedding day, and I got married in a Baptist church uh, in Brooklyn uh, where my wife grew up, and it actually looks a lot like this one. Um, not, it doesn't have the stained glass, uh, but it looks, it feels a lot like this, uh, but it was, it was my wedding day, and on my wedding day in 2002, and I got married very young, um, uh, but especially for a New Yorker, but um, on my wedding day, I had high expectations for my life with my future wife, Sarah, and we've been married now 15 years, uh, and it's been pretty amazing, actually, and a lot easier and better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, the second uh, was when my wife and I uh, moved to Williamsburg, uh, which is a neighbor, neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, to start a church. And uh, again, we were just exceedingly young, but had big dreams for moving to Brooklyn and starting a church for the neighborhood of Williamsburg. And uh, yes, we've lived, we've lived in Williamsburg now for a very long time, and we've seen it change so much. But when we moved, uh, we had so many dreams for what a church might look like in that neighborhood. And um, that experience has been incredibly hard, incredibly hard. Kind of the opposite of my expectations and my hopes and dreams for getting married. Uh, the, third, the third sort of big moment in my life was when we had our first child. And uh, my son, who's now almost six, his name is Atticus. Uh, and when he was born, uh, we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, but uh, when, when they put him in my hands uh, and then I quickly handed, them, handed him to my wife, I was like, I can't believe I have a child. I, I, if, if you've ever had a child, it's like this moment that you can't really explain and or understand until it happens. Uh, but I'm holding this child, and I just, like, felt so much love for him. And I don't think I was really thinking about, like, his future in that moment. Um, but I was just so excited to be holding this little guy uh, and all the love that I had for him. Um, and I sort of tell those, tell those stories to highlight three moments in my life uh, that were filled with expectation and hope, uh, but that have all gone really differently. Um, my son has like had some issues that we've had to kind of like work through with him, and I've had many moments since being a father where I've thought, how can I keep this little guy from experiencing the hard, really challenging things in the world? If you've ever had a kid, you've probably had that moment where you're like, I can't protect him from all of the hard things in the world. But then you also have these like other ends of the spectrum where you're like, I can imagine all the incredible things that my son could do and the amazing person that he could be, right? So there's like these opposite ends of the spectrum. And in moving to, New moving to Williamsburg to start a church, like we actually, we led a church for a long time, seven years, and there were moments where it was like, this is so amazing. But then that church, the first church that we started, actually closed after seven years. And we had to, like, lay it to rest. So these way crazy opposite ends of the spectrum. And then the one thing that you think would be the hardest, just being married for 15 years, 
that's just kind of gone smoothly. We have all sorts of expectations and hopes and dreams. And uh, if you live in New York, you're here with some kind of dream. Or maybe uh, your ancestors came to New York with a dream and with an expectation. If you've been here like a few months or even a couple of years, you might still be in that like honeymoon season of New York where it's like, this thing that I came to New York for might actually happen. But most likely, you've lived in this sort of like a pendulum swing roller coaster experience in New York of like crazy high highs and just shockingly low lows. The story that we step into um, is from Luke chapter 24. And it is the disciples collectively first encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, Jesus had a, had a, has appeared to Mary in the garden, and he has appeared to a couple of disciples, and he has appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which I believe you guys talked about last week. And now the disciples have all come together, and they're trying to figure out what is happening. And they're about to experience this sort of like crazy high high. And in their future are going to be some even higher highs and some lower lows. But we get this glimpse into this upper room experience where Jesus, the risen Jesus, comes and appears to them and, and, and blows their mind. Uh, before we jump into the story, I'd, I'd like to pray again, um, just to ask God to speak to us. So, God, um, uh, I've, I've preached for a long time, uh, and I just want to recognize uh, that um, the only real worth uh, that might come from the next few minutes is if you speak to us. Um, so I ask for you to do that. You know, just take uh, the stories and the story that's told through Scripture and the words that I have, and pray that you would make something beautiful out of them uh, for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the disciples, uh, up to this point, they've been with Jesus for around three years. And they've seen some crazy stuff. They've seen a resurrection from the dead, Lazarus. They've seen demons cast out of people. They've seen people who have had illnesses and sicknesses for decades healed on the spot. They've seen people who were outcasts of society because of their own mistakes and sins be forgiven, the shame be lifted, and then restored to their communities. They've even done some of those things themselves, as Jesus has sent them out. They have spent time with Jesus, seeing the impact of the life of Jesus all over, the, all over uh, their, in neighborhoods and communities all around the area. They had followed him. They had watched him perform miracles. They loved him so much, and they often struggled to show it. And they expected for him to be around for a long time. They had messianic expectations for the life of Jesus. Would Jesus bring a kingdom that would overthrow Rome? That would overthrow these uh, horrible tax systems? That would overthrow their being marginalized? And give them a position of power and a position of uh, privilege? Again, the Jewish people. That's what they imagined as possibilities that might come from this Jesus. 
They developed high hopes because Jesus often talked about a kingdom. And the disciples had expectations and hopes for their own lives after meeting Jesus. In Mark 10, we see James and John interacting with Jesus. And they're asking Jesus. They kind of pull him aside. They're like, hey, Jesus, what if... What if we sit on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? When you overthrow Rome, when you bring Israel back to prominence, can we be right there next to you in places of authority? The disciples had been given the power of Jesus at various points to preach, to heal, to gather crowds, and their hopes were high. But then the cross changed all of that. From the disciples' perspective, the cross came out of nowhere. It was completely unexpected, and it completely crushed their hopes and their dreams. So after seeing such possibility from the life of Jesus and for their own lives being near Jesus, they see those hopes and dreams just completely wiped away as Jesus hung on a cross. For the disciples, the cross was the worst possible outcome. It was the end. The end of any expectations they had for their lives, the end of any hopes and dreams for the future, their worst nightmare had come true. And they were living it. They loved Jesus so much, but Jesus was gone. He was dead. They didn't even get to say goodbye just vanished. Their hopes and their dreams vanishing into thin air. We all have a nightmare that we can only hope does not come true. We all have those. We probably have multiple. You might have sort of a bigger nightmare that you cannot imagine coming true, like getting cancer or dying young or or a loved one that you can't imagine losing. Or maybe it's being alone or getting divorced or something. This one nightmare that you just can't even think about the possibility of it coming true. We all have kind of smaller nightmares as well. Maybe it's losing a job or failing at a business or a startup or being rejected or betrayed or, or maybe uh, your coworkers disliking or disrespecting you or going broke or having to leave New York. How do you know what your nightmare is? What keeps you up at night? What makes you afraid? What makes you anxious? What scenarios do you play over and over and over in your head? Scenarios that might not have even happened yet. You're sort of dress rehearsing them. We all have expectations for life. And we all have hopes and dreams for life, especially we New Yorkers. Us New Yorkers? Whatever. Some of us, some of us, many of us, have actually lived through a nightmare. A worst case scenario has come true for many of you. And regardless of how long ago it happened, it still hurts. It deeply hurts. Part of you has been lost, and you won't get it back. You know it. That's life, right? 
doesn't go according to expectations. Dreams die, hopes are lost. And the more hopes and dreams we have, the more cynical we become at possibility for something beautiful again. And when our dreams are God's dreams, when our dreams are God's calling on our lives, when our dreams are something that God has actually put in front of us to do, and then they become a nightmare, what then? How could God call me to do something that would then die? Those are particularly tough. When your nightmares were God's dreams for you. Here's the thing. Even if we know that reality, that life doesn't go according to expectations, that dreams die and that hopes are lost, we still live life as if we have control over our expectations, our dreams, and our hopes. We still love life like we have control over all of that. Like we have the ability to navigate life in such a way to manipulate our expectations, hopes, and dreams into existence. We try to control our story and our life and our dreams into existence. We lay at night trying to figure out ways to get our dreams to come true. But trying to control your story and your life and your dream is a problem because it's, it's you trying to play God. Whether or not a person believes in God, they will inevitably try to play God at some point in their lives, trying to control their circumstances, these circumstances in their lives to achieve a desired outcome or to avoid a living nightmare. We all do this. This, of course, is what causes our anxiety and our fear and our depression and a host of other problems, both inside of us, physically, relationally, and all sorts of other things. Trying to control the circumstances in our lives, trying to play God, kills us inside because we are trying to do something impossible. We are living under a lie, the lie that you can control your life, the outcomes, the dreams, and the nightmares. But it's a lie. Here's a few signs to tell you that you have a control problem or that you are trying to play God. And I know all of these signs well myself. One, you live under enormous shame or guilt if a dream has fallen apart. If you've ever failed, really, if you've ever really failed, you've wrestled with the shame and guilt that goes along with that. You go back and you replay your mistakes over and over and over. Second, you constantly dress rehearse tragedy. In other words, you constantly imagine something going wrong, and you think through the various ways that something could go wrong. You have have a really hard time enjoying life because you can always imagine the worst-case scenario happening. That's like if you're you're looking for a new apartment. And you, man, 
this could be the best apartment. And then you walk in and what happens? You see like four things that could be wrong. And then you wonder what's also wrong with the landlord. And then you also wonder if the realtor is trying to take you, take advantage of you. And like just one little thing, like could, could I just have an incredible apartment? I don't know because I can't even imagine it because I know all the worst case scenarios, right? We dress rehearse tragedy. Three, you try to control the narrative of your life. It's, it's enormously important to you what other people think of you and your life. And you try to act like everything is okay and that life is going according to plans. You sort of put a cap on your own life to control the narrative so that people think that you're doing what you set out to do. Four, you find yourself making decisions that are dishonest or contrary to your values or morals. Why, why would I make this dishonest decision? It's because you're trying to manipulate your expectations and dreams into existence. Five, you live without courage. You once were courageous, but that's just kind of dying inside of you. And you found that you haven't taken risks in quite some time because the courageous risks feel out of control and you can't guarantee the outcome of a risk. Last, when thinking about expectations for life or your hopes and your dreams, you mostly feel afraid and anxious. When you allow yourself to dream and hope, you're overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. Those are some signs that you have a control problem. And I think this is all of us, especially in New York, because we came here for a dream and we had expectations coming here, but it probably hasn't gone as planned. And you've been anxious about it, afraid of what might happen. You've found yourself unusually hesitant to risk, even though risk is in your DNA. You've lied about how well it's going, or at least avoided or hidden it. You've found yourself doing things that are fun and meaningful, but you still aren't happy. You play the small and large mistakes you've made along the way that have set you back, and those mistakes haunt you. And you're getting more and more cynical about everything because whatever, turn, whatever really turns out like you plan or hope it could. This is the New York way. It's just a matter of time. I'm 13 years in. I'm thir- I, I just like walked through the, my 13 years in New York. That's just me. Like, I am the last guy. I'm just cynical. What's actually going to go well? The disciples have already... The disi- Let's go back to the disciples. We've already seen them manipulating circumstances. Can I be at your right hand or your left? We've already seen them hesitant to risk. We've already seen them anxious... We've already seen them lying to protect themselves. And in this moment, we we see them terrified. They're sitting in the upper room together, trying to figure out what happened as Jesus died. And a couple of them have claimed to see Jesus' resurrection. Wait, is there a totally different thing happening here? Like, the thought can't even sort of get through their minds because... They're trying to control the outcome, their expectations, control even their own hopes and their dreams in this moment. 
The last thing they are expecting is resurrection. The last thing. Their hopes and dreams have already died. But then Jesus appears. What he does is fascinating. First he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. In other words, rest and wholeness and blessing. May your anxiety and your fear and your cynicism and your lack of courage go away. May they blow out of the room. And may peace be on you. Then he says, it's really me. Touch, touch my hands. I'm actually really here. And then just to make sure they know, he eats and drinks with them. And they're like, it's not a ghost. He is showing them that he is resurrected. He is turning their expectations and hopes and dreams upside down. Because resurrection is just about to change everything. Resurrection means that Jesus is alive, that he is with us, that he is with you. It means that he is the true God. It means that he is, in fact, control, in control. Therefore, you don't have to play that role any longer. Now, this sounds great. Okay, Jesus is resurrected. He's in control. So then why do all the really hard things still happen? If he's in control, why don't things turn out better? I'm not, I'm not sort of faking a little bit of angst in this question. Like the disciples, we usually don't understand until after the fact. Because resurrection does two things. It writes a better story. And it gives us a better Savior. Resurrection writes a better story. And it gives us a better Savior. Resurrection gives us, it writes a better story. Jesus died, and that's what led to resurrection. And that's the story that Jesus wants to write for you. For you, for your story in Jesus, resurrection will come. All the nightmares will come untrue. All the wounds will be healed. Death will turn to life. We think that if God were alive, then life should be better. And when it's not better, then we question God. But, in fact, God writes different stories than we would expect. He has far greater hopes and dreams for us than we could ever imagine. But we think we know how life should go. But in reality, resurrection tells us that God has so much more for us than we could ever imagine. But it will always require some kind of death to get there. Always. Even if the death is just your desire for control. It's our effort to control our narratives often that keeps us from embracing death and looking for resurrection. It's our effort, I'm going to say it again, it's our effort to control our narrative that keeps us from embracing death and looking for resurrection. Resurrection means that our lives and our stories will actually involve pain. Our hopes and our dreams will seem to die. 
But in fact, God is writing a bigger story, a better story than you could ever write or craft. And it's leading to a bigger and a better kingdom than one you could build or one that is centered around you. What if your expectations and your dreams and your hopes are actually too small? Or too calculated, or too realistic, or too selfish? And Jesus wants to bring death so that a new hope can be birthed. That's what resurrection tells us. What about this church? What if, what if the church was actually a collection of dreamers in resurrection? That freedom and healing and justice were actually possible. That the most broken places were actually the most likely for resurrection. What would the church look like then? Jesus writes a better story. Jesus is also a better Savior. Here's how. Resurrection means that Jesus is always with you. And he always knows what you're going through. And he will always love you. When you sit in the mistakes that you make that hijack your own dreams, and that causes you to be alone, Jesus knows what that's like. And he's with you, and he loves you. When someone else makes a mistake and betrays you or abandons you or harms you and your dream dies and you're alone, Jesus understands. He's been there and he's with you and he loves you. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be viewed as a failure and a mistake. He knows what it's like to build something only to have it torn down. He knows everything. He has been through death. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. A couple of weeks ago was Good Friday, and um, Easter weekend, I love Easter weekend so much, and it's not just because, like, I'm a preacher and I get to preach to more people. Um, it's because I've wrestled with the death-resurrection story in my, own, in my own story so much. Um, the first church that I started died. And it, resur- it began, the, the, the first glimpse of resurrection was on an Easter Sunday with about 50 people in a space that had been praying for resurrection. And we all came together and we were like, there were 10 of us meeting in a living room and we showed up on Easter Sunday and didn't do anything, just prayed and like 40, 50 people showed up and we were like, maybe God's with us. Maybe resurrection is possible. And then we stepped into the second church plant out of the death of the first and it actually became something beautiful. It actually resurrected. Resurrection weekend is like so important to me. And I love Good Friday because it deals with the actual reality of death. 
Like we don't have to hide it. We don't have to act like it's not there. We don't have to try to control our circumstances to make sure everything's okay anymore. We can just admit and be real about the fact that some things are horrible and terrible and even many things die. That we all die, actually. We can just be honest about it. This past um, Easter weekend, a couple of weeks ago, is my first uh, week Easter week in like 13 years to have no responsibilities, which was really weird. Um, I didn't know what to do with it, mostly because it's not just because like, oh man, like I really want to be preaching. It's more like I really want to be involved in some way in like the church celebrating Easter together, resurrection together. And uh, Good Friday came along, and my wife's in grad school, and we have two little kids, so I... Uh, she was in school, and I ended up having to just stay home with the kids, so I couldn't go anywhere for, good Friday, for, good, for a Good Friday service, which was really challenging for me, really, really challenging. And uh, I ended up at this local spot uh, where, I'm, where I'm like a local, and um, just sitting. Uh, my wife got home, and she had to do homework, so she was with the kids who were sleeping, and I ended up just going out and was like, I'm going to go out and be sad, you know, like just be melancholy. Uh, sometimes it's really good to be melancholy. Um, so I went, and I always had my sketch pad with me, so I sat with my sketch pad. Um, and people were all around me, and they were just, like, celebrating and having a good time. Uh, it wasn't a church. And I sat, and I wrote. And I just wrote all my feelings about being alone on Good Friday and how uh, I don't have a church to lead anymore and how, like, I've been hurt, and how dreams have died, and all of these things. I just, like, wrote all of, I was just, like, very real about all of this death that I was feeling. And I was sitting there thinking, like, man, I shouldn't be alone right now. I shouldn't, I should be with people who were also sitting in this. And I felt like, when I felt Jesus, I'd been writing all about just, like, sort of betrayal and being alone and all this stuff. And in that moment, I just felt Jesus saying, I just, I felt Jesus with me. In the, in the most pure way that I've ever felt maybe in my life, I think. Where I just felt Jesus was saying, everything you're feeling right now, I've felt. Like the death of you not being a pastor anymore, I felt. The death of you not having a voice anymore, I felt. The death of you leading no one, I've felt. And then it like hit me. It's like he said, that's actually what Good Friday is. I was actually totally alone, hanging on a cross, betrayed, abandoned, forgotten, silenced. And just the reality of Jesus being with me and getting it, like understanding so deeply, it, it changed everything for me. The fact that I can sit in the reality of death and be okay because Jesus is with me. We'll never actually be alone. That's what resurrection means. So when we look at, well, let me do this. I want to challenge you. Is there a time when you could say, Jesus doesn't know what I'm feeling or experiencing right now? I actually, instead of me telling you my own experience, I want you to challenge Jesus in that way. Like whatever it is that you're feeling, Jesus, have you been here? Is it, is it possible that if no one else gets what I'm feeling right now, that you actually do? 
And I think Jesus will meet you in a profound way. What if the church believed that Jesus was actually with us? That his ministry was possible through us. That everything we saw happening in Jesus' life could actually happen through us. Maybe we don't experience the presence of Jesus because we collectively are living so safely and predictably. And it's actually when we step out into the hopes and dreams that Jesus gives us that we will then experience his presence. I just wonder. This morning, wherever you're at, um, if you're sort of new to New York and looking, and, and New York is just endless possibilities, I don't want to just say, just wait. But I, I guess I just did. But when it gets hard, when you feel alone, when you've made some mistakes, resurrection means that Jesus is with you. And it means that there's a better story being written. So don't lose hope. And if you're here and you're in the middle of what feels like death, allow Jesus to be with you. He will be. And allow yourself to look up and hope that something better might come. Not just better, but Jesus written better, a story, a better story. And if you're sort of on like the back end and you're just feeling really cynical and hopeless or angry or just overridden with anxiety and fear, I wonder if there could be just some sense of like opening up to the possibility that Jesus has been with you the whole time. And maybe if you look back and you say, I could never see how resurrection could be written from that nightmare come true. Yeah, there are, there are those kinds of deaths and nightmares. But maybe we could hope. Maybe we could hope that resurrection could be rewritten in a way that we couldn't imagine. And allow that to, as Jesus spoke over the disciples, bring peace. Um, let's pray. God, <clears throat> God, I, um, I, I've, I've got to admit I'm wrestling with the, what I've just said uh, so much myself personally right now. And, um, but God, you've been with me. You've been present. I pray that you would be present with everyone here individually, and I pray that you would be with this congregation corporately. Whatever it is that each individual is going through and this church is going through, be present and allow us to hear from you and feel you. And God, I pray that whatever uh, dreams have been lost and hopes have been lost and expectations haven't been met, I pray that, we, that you would give us grace to trust that a better story is being written. And God, I pray that uh, even just for this church, I pray that you would write a beautiful resurrection story in some way. I don't know how. None of us know how. And I pray, God, that you would give this church courage to step out into the brokenness and death in the world where no one else wants to step.
where no one else could imagine something good coming, where no one else has the courage. God, give this church courage to step out into the brokenness of this neighborhood and of this city in whatever way, because this church believes that resurrection is possible and that you're writing a better story. Give us grace in Jesus' name.